You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. All right, here we go. Let's open the Bible together. As is our custom, we, we commit a, a significant portion of our time to, uh, I say this, to stretch our attention span. Uh, that'll be something in a, in a kind of a swiping culture. Uh, I, I want you to, to open the Bible with me, and we're going to read out of the Gospel of Matthew in the 17th chapter. And so if you don't have a Bible, um, we're going to make one a gift to you. You'll see a, a paperback Bible in the tray of the chair in front of you. So don't be afraid of the table of contents if this is the first time you've opened a Bible. Join us as we open the Bible, and as we say, the, the Bible begins to open us. And so we're going to stretch our attention span for thinking about who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus, as well as we, we stretch our attention span for contemplating how majestic Jesus is and, and how he's worth everything to us. So uh, through this journey through the Gospel of Matthew over the last year and a half, we've found ourselves in the turning point of the book where Jesus, it, it becomes evident to his followers that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But, but in that, from chapter 16 and 17, you get a picture of people who, even though they might begin to see that and, uh, and, and believe that, don't quite get what it means don't quite understand it. And so Jesus reveals himself majestically in the first few verses of chapter 17. As we saw last week, it's called the transfiguration. That is that Jesus was metamorphed into a bright and glorious and yet terrifying presence of God, complete with the the prophet Elijah and and who represented the the prophet and the voice of God and, and the word of law of God represented in Moses, just gathering their speaking with Jesus. And the disciples fell on their faces, terrified, and yet, and yet the, the glory that shone and overshadowed them that gave them terror also gave them peace, as Jesus says, do not fear, I'm with you. Well, no sooner than they experience the glory of God do we get introduced by Matthew again to people that don't quite get it. So beginning in verse 14, they come down from the mountaintop experience, quite literally where we would get that phrase, to a rude awakening. So beginning in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 17, read with me. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boil was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move here, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. I want to begin as we've begun each of these sections of Matthew with a question. What is the greatest miracle you can think of? Think of it this way. What's the most miraculous, impossible, improbable, 
unbelievable outcome that you can imagine for your life. So unbelievable that even now you, you feel kind of embarrassed to think of it. Seriously, think for just a moment. What's the, right now, what's, what's the dream come true? And I mean absurd. I mean beyond your wildest imagination. What's the thing that, that, that you wish would happen? But maybe in some ways you're, you're too afraid to wish it because you know how disappointing it would be to hope in it. What is the most amazing miracle that you could imagine transpiring in your life? And just like this passage that we read, we get real deep real fast because here's what I want you to realize. The answer to your question, or the answer to that question, your answer to that question reveals what God you believe in. So think, what, what was the most unimaginable, right? What would you first think of, right? Was it fame? Success? Right? The applause and accolade of others? Wealth? Fortune? Right? Ease? Pleasure? And just realize that this passage invites us to contemplate the impossible so that we will see who God really is and the faith that we offer to Him. And the answer to your question about the most unimaginable miracle, the most miraculous and amazing outcome in your life reveals the God you believe in. And so think of it this way. Jesus has come to offer to spend the time, treasure, and eternity of the righteous creator of the universe on his enemy. Rebellious and depraved sinners just like you and me. And if... Right? If I say, what's the most miraculous, unbelievable thing you can imagine happening in your life? And if it was anything other, right? If anything in your mind was other than that the righteous and holy creator of the universe would come to be with us and for us and like us, to redeem us to himself, to be with him and enjoy the pleasure of his company forever and ever, then I promise you, whatever you were dreaming of or hoping in is a lesser miracle. And this passage confronts us with the nature of what God has come to accomplish for us in Jesus. That he has come to reconcile the lost and for all those who would turn from the lesser miracles, the lesser joys, in order to receive the goodness that he offers in himself, find the impossible. All by simply looking in, trusting in, Jesus as the one who brings it to us. You see, this text might be best understood with two different contrasts, right? Two different strange things juxtaposed with one another. In the, in the first few verses, you see the contrast of the mountaintop glory that they've just experienced with an awareness of the pain that sin brings. No sooner than they come off the mountain where they're overwhelmed with the glory of God, overshadowed with His radiance, do they encounter the effects of sin in the world. And then the second contrast is the power of Jesus contrasted with the powerlessness of those who lack faith in Him. You see a contrast of a mountaintop experience with an abrupt 
and powerful confrontation with the effects of sin. And then you see the power of Jesus against the powerlessness of those who lack faith in him. And I got three things that I think will help us understand and apply this. One, what this text does not mean. I'll say more about that, but suffice to say that this might be uh, one of the most dangerous passages of Scripture to take out of context. And so I'm going to speak to that, I hope, a little bit. Two, what not to do. And three, what not to hide. So what, what this text does not mean, what not to do in response, and what not to hide. The mountaintop experience is juxtaposed. Last week, we saw the glory and splendor of Moses and Elijah, the radiance of the glory and the presence of God in the face of Jesus, as Hebrews would tell us we see. And this week, we see the disappointment that Jesus has with the faithless disciples and the demonic. The contrast with the preceding story that Jesus is Lord, and yet the fallen, broken world that is marred by sin stinks. Now, it might be best to like, flip those in reverse order. That might be more encouraging for you. But that's the first juxtaposition. With the, you see just the way that Matthew is telling us this story is you get the picture of the glory and radiance of Jesus. Hallelujah! And then the reality of the effects of sin. Now, now if you're new to talking about Christianity, I'm really glad that you're here. Maybe you wouldn't even call yourself a Christian. We'll, we'll use the word sin uh, that's a particularly important word that we, we learn from Scripture. It's, it's simply the way to describe an offense against God, right? If you think of an offense in a game as like a foul or a penalty, right? An offense against, I don't know, the, the government is what? A crime, right? Sin is simply the, the way that we describe an offense or rebellion against God. And because you and I, from the very beginning, want to be God ourselves and are not satisfied with just God alone, we look for lesser, we look to find in lesser gods and lesser things all the things that God offers in himself. And that sin leaves us in a state of what we call the fall, in which we, you and I both know this, something in the world is not right. Something is not right. When you look around and you see the things that happen and you experience the despair and disappointment of just simply living in the world, you realize down deep something is not right. And that's the juxtaposition here. Jesus is Lord, and yet the fallen, broken world that is marred by sin is awful. As I said, it might be better to swap the order. It might be more encouraging. The, the fallen, broken world that we live in that causes pain and suffering is terrible. And yet, Jesus is Lord, he's the redemptive, reconciling presence of God. And so last week, Jesus, with his three command, uh, companions, has a foretaste of God's kingdom. And this week, he returns to the demon-infested world where Satan is able to do whatever he wants, play a malevolent role working in and through the effects of the fall. And in this, we see the that Jesus' interaction with either his disciples in the glorious transfiguration, but also in the people that come to him, even the demon-possessed epileptic, we see something about the character and nature of God as sovereign over all things. And our difficulty with trusting that that's true, so much so that he rebukes, maybe more 
strongly than he has anywhere else, the lack of the faith of his disciples and even the lack of faith through them, using the language of the Old Testament, all of these people, the people Israel, the crowds as it were. And yet there's another paradox that we're invited to see as well. While we see the effects of sin, we also see here the mercy of Jesus. Jesus is so powerful, so gracious, so merciful that any amount of faith in him will grant you all you need, more than you can imagine, even an impossible blessing. And you see the juxtaposition of the omnipotence and mercy of Jesus with the impotence of faithless people. So, start first. What does this not mean? What does this not mean? Well, I'll describe what this does not mean in, in kind of Christian, Christianese-ish terms. Uh, and so for many, it may, it may not make sense, but we, w- we would call this the prosperity gospel. That is the belief that if you will just have faith in Jesus, you will get health, wealth, and prosperity. If you'll just believe in Jesus, you'll get whatever you want. All of your earthly desires will be satisfied. It's called the prosperity gospel. That's ironic because once you add anything to the word gospel, it ceases to be the gospel. Uh, that's that's the, the only way to describe the gospel is with the. Once you start adding things to it, you've already started to undermine it. But, but let me tell you what this means. That is, it's a particularly Western, and I don't mind offering this as a critique. It's almost exclusively, to begin with, an American gospel. That is that the prosperity of Westerners and especially Americans who would call themselves Christian began to conflate the the benefits of God's rule and reign with the pleasures of the world. So much so that they, I mean, after all, it's human nature to want to have your cake and eat it too. Uh, You're saying that, you know, in light of what we've just read, that Jesus has called us to lay down our lives and and to take up our cross and experience suffering and self-denial and self-sacrifice in order for the greater glory, you're saying I can just get all the good things without any of that? Cool. If you just trust Jesus, all the suffering and all the pain in the world will go away? That sounds amazing. And this, this little passage here, the, the, a couple of these pretty poignant verses that Jesus uses to, to cryptically drive home the point have been pulled out of context in such a way that they have brought, I believe, a damnable offense, a damnable belief that is actually lesser than what is offered. And here's the worst part. American Christianity, even through maybe well-meaning, I don't know, let's call them missionaries, have taken this damnable idea to some of the most vulnerable, the poorest people in the world. And essentially said, Jesus can lift you out of your poverty if you will just respond in faith. Give money, time, and attention to what we're saying, and Jesus will deliver you from poverty. Which is, right, almost true. It's almost true. Jesus will, if you will look to him in hope, alleviate and deliver us from the greatest poverty of all but the greatest poverty of all is not what we experience in this life it's what we experience in eternity separated from God by sin Jesus sets the captives free Jesus gives us eternally what we want temporally Uh, a Scottish poet says it this way in all unbelief there are at least these two things 
a high or good opinion of oneself and a low or bad opinion of God. Because after all, if I'm not that bad and my sin is not that bad, and if God's not that holy and not that righteous, then I don't need all this atonement, forgiveness, redemption, and reconciliation from Jesus. I just need him to make my life nicer and better. If my sin isn't bad and hasn't eternally separated me from God, then I don't need his redemptive plan in my life. I just need him to make me happier. And watch out for this. It interprets this passage like this, and I quote, Whatever mountain you face, speak it to God and he will move it. Be it a financial crisis, be it sickness, be it family turmoil, speak that mountain to God and he will move it. I heard one, uh, one pastor say uh, he, he was speaking kindly about heresy and he says, heresy are dysfunctional thoughts about God. Uh, that's a nice way of saying that, right? That's a dysfunctional thought about God. That God, the God of the universe, the righteous creator of the world, is really just a genie in a lamp. And if you'll kind of master the formula, say things rightly, do things rightly, then he owes you, and he must give you all the pleasures that you desire. Now, I'm going to give you the reasons why I think that is an unhelpful thing. This is, why, this is what this does not mean. This does not mean, and under no circumstance should you take this to mean, that you are to go about and, and simply have faith in whatever, and, and the amount of your faith uh, will ultimately give you all the pleasures of this life. I'll walk through reasons that you should watch out for this. There is no, first of all, evidence of any mountains being moved in the first century church. So if this is the goal, if he's speaking literally, then this whole Christianity thing is a sham, right? Uh, as, if, as if like Jesus came to start the world's most miraculous excavator service, right? Come, come and we will, right, we will level, we will level the turf, right? We will, we will help you manage elevation, right? Like that, again, that's, that's absurd, right? That's silly. And, and the reason it's absurd, because there's no evidence of that. There's no, you would hear about it, right? Like, oh yeah, they just leveled things out. There's no, there's no historical example of this, first of all. There's, this never happens. But there's also a couple of other things. Number one is that faith, the faith described here, and the faith in the entirety of the Scripture, is never spoken of without an object. And that's, that's important because the way that you and I, as we probably understood over the last century, in a kind of a westernized mentality of faith, uh, think of faith differently. At least one of two ways. Number one, we think of faith as simply a way of being. In a, in a more pluralistic world, we describe faith as one of many options, right? You could be a member or an adherent to many faiths, right? And, and that's a problem. Think of it for, for our, our friend who's a, a Buddhist. That's not even accurate. No, no Buddhist friend of yours would say they, they adhere to a Buddhist faith. In fact, the, the goal of nirvana in the, in, the, in the way of thinking that a, a Buddhist would see is to actually free yourself completely from things like faith, to be separated, freed from, I'm done with all this faith stuff, and now I'm completely and totally separated, right? You, like that, that isn't even helpful practically. But that's how kind of a pluralistic mindset thinks of world religions. As multiple, let's call them faiths. But again, that isn't how the scripture ever speaks about faith. Here's the second thing. 
it speaks of, or, or like a culture, uh, kind of a cultural theme for the last century, let's say, speaks of faith as an object in and of itself, right? Think of someone who, like, I don't know, at their funeral, someone would say they were a man or woman of faith. And it, and it kind of speaks to like this nebulously, ambiguously, like, okay, they, they possessed some faith that was in and of itself. Well, again, the Bible never talks about faith without speaking of its object. Side note here, you don't have to adhere to this because I'll be dead, but should I die and one of you speak at my funeral, please do not speak of me. And again, I'll be dead, so I won't be able to stop you, but please do not say he was a man of faith. Speak of the object of my faith. Say something like, he really loved Jesus. He was a big fan of Jesus. Right, do you get the idea? Don't speak nebulously, like the last century might have taught Westerners to think about faith, as, it, as, as though it is something in and of itself. Faith, as the Bible teaches, has no meaning apart from his object. Now, this is important, especially for the rest of this passage. The power in your faith is not its quality or its quantity. The power of your faith is its object. Because after all, you can have a ton of faith in something that's stupid. Ever done that? Ever gamble or risk something? <laughs> I had a lot. I put my faith in that, and it failed. And, and imagine as it fails, you go like, but I, but I believed. I had so much faith that this investment would pan out, right? C can you imagine that being, right? No, you wouldn't do that. You, instead, you would look and go like, well, that was a poor thing to invest in, right? I sure gambled. You get the idea? That's a picture of biblical faith, is that the power of our faith is not its quantity or quality, but instead its object. But here's the last reason, and I'll simply run through the Old Testament now, this is where it's going to, I'm not really sure for the next couple of seconds here, I'm not really sure if I'm going to be preaching or ranting. I'm going to toe the line. So just hang on for, as, as, as Paul would say, like, I, you know, I, I speak not as the Lord, but as I, right? One of the main reasons that that is not what this text means, namely, you have some build up some amount of faith, is that he makes powerful, throughout this text, allusions to the Old Testament, at least three. The first is the coming down from encountering God from the mountain to sinful people. The second is the theme of a sinful and perverse generation. And the third is the power of God to level mountains. All three of these are prevalent themes throughout the entirety of Scripture. And they are referring to the work of God in redeeming his people. Exodus 32, beginning in verse 15, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. He's got God's word for his freed people who are now in the exodus, set free to a new promised land. And he comes down from the mountain and immediately encounters sinful people. Does it sound like what we just read? That's because that's what Matthew wants you to think. Verse 16, it says the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, I have this one, would you read it with me? When, when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. It was coming down from the mountain thinking, all oh, these people are having a party. Maybe it's a welcome home party. It's not. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And what we come to find out is that these people, while God had been anointing Moses and giving his redemptive word to his people, they were crafting an idol, a golden calf. 
Verse 19 says, as soon as he came near to the camp and saw the calf, the golden calf that they had begun to worship and hope and trust in, and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. The first reason this is not about, this is not an incantation to get whatever you want, is that the Bible tells us this theme here, Matthew wants us to see, is a recurring theme. Where even though we have powerful revelation of God, we are still sinful and trust in lesser things. Here's the second thing. The the theme of a perverse generation. You can see this in in Deuteronomy chapter 32. That the rock, his work is perfect and for all his ways are, in all his ways are justice. The, The God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright he is. They have dealt corruptly with him. And they are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. When Jesus says this, and he has before, this is what he's referring to. He's referring to this Old Testament theme, like this idea that that's how bad our sin is. It corrupts us. It, it makes us perverted as not just individuals, but even, even the things we get together corporately to do, right? You get a bunch of criminals together, uh, it doesn't become a birthday party. It becomes organized crime, right? Like, that's the nature of sin when we gather together. And we'll endorse it, we'll systematize it, and we'll make money off of it even. And that's, that's this picture of a, a crooked generation. So when Jesus laments here, we know he's not giving us some magical incantation to get whatever we want. He's talking about the God of the universe coming in, into an encounter with the depravity of humanity. But here's the last part. That whole, if you will say to this mountain, it will move. This is a theme throughout the entirety of the scripture to picture for us the power of God Job chapter 9 says it this way, that truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be made right before God? For if one wishes to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? Right? Who has opposed God? And what does it tell us about the greatness and power of God? He who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger. The picture of the moving of mountains is the mighty work of God to do what God alone can do. Ezekiel 38 says it this way, Thus says the Lord God. And his jealousy and his blazing wrath, he declares that he will return and, and bring justice, justice and vengeance upon the people who have turned against him and begun to oppress and disrespect him and his people. He will return in jealousy and blazing wrath. Verse 20 of Ezekiel 38, it says that the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall away and every wall shall tumble to the ground. Do you hear it? The theme of the entirety of the scripture is the power of God to move mountains is the power of his wrath. But here's the thing. It's also a beautiful thing that we saw in the prediction and the power of John the Baptist. The gospels quote this when they introduce us to John the Baptist. A voice crying in Isaiah 40, verse 3, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain hill be made low. And the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places be made plain. Do you hear that? That's like, uh, there, are, there are difficult roads, and then there's like I-90 straight west of here, 
right? Like next time you drive uh, across the prairie, uh, stop and be like, this is what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. It's going to be so easy to get to God. It's going to be flat, open, and straight, right? Set the cruise control, get in the back seat, take a nap. I mean, it is easy. Don't actually do that. That's a hyperbole. Made sense given the text, but anyway. Even the picture of what John the Baptist came to do was what? To make a preparation for what Jesus would do. Namely, that all the sin, all our rebellion that separates us from God, God will in his mercy flatten out. He will level it. There will be no hindrance between us and God. No mountain will stand in our way. So friend, if someone takes, and this is where, again, I don't know if this is preaching or ranting, But if someone takes the glorious story of God's majesty, His greatness to create all things, His greatness and righteousness to judge all things, and His power to make all things new and invite free and easy access to Him into a plea for you to invest in their next jet, then friend, that is a damnable heresy. And it makes sense though, doesn't it? Right, if I just told you, I mean, you don't even have to like me to, hey, if you will help me buy my next jet, all right, your life will get better. Right, just, just, a, just, just a small offering, a faith offering, a seed of faith offering. All you need is a little faith. You'll help me buy my jet. You don't even have to like me or jets to think like, that's easy. My life gets better if I just help buy. Do you get the idea? And friend, that may seem absurd and silly, I hope, in light of what I've just ranted about, but that is not what this text means. This text is an embodiment of the redemptive work of God to restore his people. It's what it, so first, it's what this text does not mean. Now, that might seem absurd, but, but can I just, before we move on to the next thing, point out the ways that the prosperity gospel is present in us and we don't even know it? It's just simply there in form of entitlement. Entitlement. Anytime there's something in us that is disappointed with the world and the, our, our rationale, our reasoning for being disappointed is something that we've done. And so I regularly meet with people who have kind of bought into an individual or communal or even national prosperity gospel. This idea that like, I'm doing all the right things. Why am I not married? I'm doing all the right things. Why am I not happy in marriage? I'm doing all the right things. Why are, did you hear it? Why are things so difficult? It can even creep into families. Like we're living the right way. Why would nothing, why would, why would anything bad happen to us? It can even creep into the church. This kind of prosperity gospel that if you do things the right way, God is obliged, he's obligated to bless you. If you just get your doctrine and practice right, then this will grow. You can even see it culturally or nationalistically. This belief that once we work things out and get things in right order, God must bless us. You've heard it? And underneath it, again, Underneath it is the same silly belief that would think that, like, if I help, I help this guy buy a jet, God's going to bless me. As though that is going to atone for sin. And friend, what God has done for us in Christ is simply bigger. And so when that entitlement surfaces in you and I, see that as an invitation to repent 
and an invitation to receive a much, much better miracle, a much better gift, a treasure, Jesus says later, that thieves can't steal, that the economy can't ruin, that moth cannot eat and rust can't tarnish. No, God's goal is not simply to bless you individually with pleasure in this life or to even bless your nation with prosperity in this life. God's goal is to give himself to the nations forever and ever and ever. So that's what not to think. Here's what not to do. And evidently the, uh, the way this story is told, it's to act in a way that is not in faith. I won't say much about this, but it seems pretty evident here that whatever they were doing, they were not acting in faith or even not acting in prayer. Did you hear Jesus' rebuke? You hear him saying kind of like, all right, well, how can we do this? And, and he simply says to them, you lack faith. Now, this is a tricky translation. This, this phrase, you have little faith, it's shown up before, but here we see it, and it's simply showing up in a way that's like, uh, that I think is best translated, lack of faith. Right? I say lack of faith because look at how he illustrates it. He he illustrates it by saying, if you just had a mustard seed, that would be enough, right, to get access to God's redemptive work in the world, namely leveling mountains that welcome, right? Do you get the idea? And so here's the second kind of heresy is we, we hear a story that's, it says literally this has nothing to do with the size of your faith. And then you'll hear someone apply this text to say, like, you just need to have a, a greater, better faith. That's not helpful. Uh, and that's just because you and I don't handle mustard seeds much. That might be it. Uh, but think of it this way. What if I told you like, hey, you can purchase this great treasure, but all you need is a penny. Like if you just have a penny, you can buy this great treasure, right? That is literally the lowest unit of currency. And that is not to say, right, you, you wouldn't, you would, the right response wouldn't be like, well, I need to get a bunch of money. No, you would just say like, oh dude, if I have any money, any money at all would get me this. And that's the point here. It's not that you should have a lot of faith to access all of God's mercy and grace. It's that if you have any faith, that's how amazing God is. That's how beautiful and glorious God is. The power is not in the amount of your faith. The power is completely and utterly in Jesus. And that's the miraculous paradox of faith. Right? Like, well, I have weak faith that's prone to doubt. Good. That's enough. Well, I have skeptical faith and I'm cynical. That's enough. Are you, have you looked away from yourself? To, that's how amazing Jesus is. And that's, what, that's the paradox, right? Because nothing else in the world works that way. Right? You can't, you can't, you can't go to buy a multi-million dollar product, uh, product or property or business with a penny. They'll be like, no, this isn't enough. And that's the blessing of the gospel. Jesus says, have you come to me? That's enough. I'm enough. And, and so just look, the power here is not in the amount of your faith. The power is in the object. And friend, any, any that would turn, turn and look to him. I love, that's the beautiful, uh, the, in John 3, 16, you get the picture of people wandering in the wilderness and they're, they're poisoned by this snake and uh, Moses gives this beautiful gospel picture. He has this perfected bronze serpent. He says, if you will just look, like, I mean, these people are dying of poison, Right? And he didn't say, if you'll just get up and come to the snake, right? Kiss the snake or touch the snake. What does he say? Just look to it. All you have to do is look to it. And that's the picture of, for God so loved the world. Do, do you hear it? That anyone who would believe, who would just look to him, who would just look to Jesus, would what? Have eternal life. Have an abundant blessing. And so what not to do is to 
act apart from faith, but instead to look to and to trust in Jesus, not yourself. Think of it this way. Any faith at all in Jesus is enough faith to change everything. Any. Any faith. Now, this is going to get even more powerful in the next couple of chapters when Jesus does some more miraculous things in two weeks or three weeks we'll see that he says even you must become like what? A child. To illustrate the point. Have you looked away from your sin and looked in need to Jesus? That's enough. That's it. And yet they had somehow reduced whatever it is they were called to do from Matthew 10 to cast out demons into something that they believed they didn't need Jesus to accomplish. Whatever it was that they were doing, people knew that the disciples had that power, but, but the rebuke shows us that whatever they were doing had the veneer of being a Christian or like Christ, and yet it lacked the substance, and so therefore it lacked the power. And Jesus rebukes them harshly, You can't do this without trusting me. You can't do this without depending on me. Here's a Midwestern gospel. Maybe it's an American gospel, but I think if I ask some people to brag about who gets it better, the Midwesterners would say, I do. Here's the Midwestern gospel. Jesus will cover my life in fire insurance when I die. He'll take me to heaven, but in the meantime, I got this. I can work hard enough to attain this. And that's why I know it's a Midwestern, because if you put all the people, if I said, hey, who works the hardest? Who works the hardest in the world, right? All the Midwestern people are like, ugh, I got that, right? Fly over my state while I work, right? But it's insidious. It it can become kind of this awful thing that, that has the veneer, the facade of Christianity, and none of its substance. It sounds and talks like Christianity, but it depends and relies on the self. It shuns desperation. It shuns need. It hates feeling helpless. And so, whatever was going on here, evidently they didn't take it seriously enough to think that they needed Jesus' help. And Jesus reminds them and gave them, as he gives us, failure to remind them that apart from him, you could do nothing. Here's the last thing seen what not to believe, what not to do, and the last one is what not to hide. Notice something amazing. The two people that we see experience the immeasurable grace of God in this story. Number one, the father. Did you hear it? He didn't hide his desperation. He came and said, show mercy on my son. And what happened? He experienced the blessing of Jesus. But here's the second one, and it's not as obvious. We've been talking about this as we go through this story. And it's Matthew and the disciples who tell the story. Just stop for a minute. Matthew could have told a whole lot of stories about a whole lot of encounters with Jesus that made him look really good, right? And what are the stories he tells? Stories where Jesus rebukes him and goes like, you don't even believe. You don't even have a mustard seed of faith. How long do I have to put, right? Just think, just stop for a minute and imagine how this story might be told today on Instagram Twitter or TikTok. One of two things would happen. One of two things would happen. One, it would lack any redemptive power at all, right? Jesus destroys disciples in Israel, right? No redemptive whatever. Or it would lack any sort of rebuke whatsoever, right? Just a selfie of, hey, me and Jesus, ha, right? And notice what I've tried to show you, like the power and the logic of the gospel that Jesus Christ has received us completely 
and yet rebukes us and does not condone our sin. And the power of the gospel that convicts us of sin, but does not condemn us in our sin. I believe there's nothing right now that our world needs more than this, the logic and power of the gospel visible in you and me. That the God of the universe looks and receives us so freely that we stop photoshopping our lives. We can say, this is who I am. I'm of little and weak faith, but isn't Jesus glorious? I stumble and fall. I'm a fake. I'm a fraud. I'm an actor. And yet this is how good and merciful Jesus is. Do you see the difference? And the two people that experience the greatest grace are the father who comes with all his needs and said, I need your mercy. And the other ones are the disciples who tell the story. And they're willing to tell a story in which they're not the hero and Jesus is. Friend, our culture and the people you know need this, this gospel interruption into the way we think so that you and I can look at one another and say, I love you. God loves you. And yet your sin is not endorsed or condoned by God. That you and I, because of the freedom we now have in Christ, can look at one another and say, this was wrong and unrighteous, this was sinful, and yet in Christ there is no condemnation. I think if you listen to public discourse, the thing that's missing the most is this logic and beauty of the gospel. Hey, I love you. I love you, but you're not there yet, and Jesus is going to get us there. I love you, and you're received by God in grace, but he's also going to grow us in grace. And in our culture, we have really two options, right? Either, right, owned him, slammed him, canceled him, right? No redemption whatsoever, as opposed to like, hey, this person said some things we all disagree with. Um, We should give him an opportunity to, I don't know, make amends, right? I don't know, atonement, redemption, reconciliation in the public square? That sounds crazy, right? Or the bravery to disagree and say that actually won't lead to human flourishing. That isn't how God created you to thrive. And yet, you're not condemned. Friend, this is the invitation, I believe, for Connection Church and all those who have encountered the mountain-leveling power of Jesus. That we're free, we're free that we don't have to Photoshop our lives. And we're free to see the acceptance of God for what it is that doesn't condone our sin. And we're free to be convicted of sin, knowing that we're not convicted, or excuse me, not condemned. This is the power and the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus looks and goes, you lack faith, but don't you worry, I'll die in your place. You lack any of the qualities that would reflect our good and gracious God, but don't you worry, I got it. You're accepted completely. And yet your sin is not condoned. And so, friend, just think how we, we're hiding. Think how you can help subvert the culture with the gospel here. Think about how when we talk about these issues around gender, sexuality, family, education, money, right? Politics, partisan politics specifically. We can say, hey, that's not foolish or good, and yet I love you and you're not rejected. Or we can say, hey, I accept you, I am grateful for you, and yet I do not condone your lifestyle. You get the idea? That sounds crazy, right? Like, you can't do that. You get it? Can you imagine what we would look like in the world? Might even be more miraculous than a mountain being flattened. Because look, Matthew recounts their failures to reacquaint us with the Savior. He doesn't mind recounting his failure. Why? 
because he knows the grace that's in Jesus. And friend, you and I can too. We can come to Jesus desperately. We can come to Jesus humbly and know that apart from him, there is no hope, but because of him and through him, we experience the jaw-dropping, miraculous end of our story that we can't even ask or imagine. I, I, I was sort of right and sort of wrong a moment ago. I said there's no, like, there's no historical evidence of Christians moving mountains. But there's one little small one that was kind of cool, kind of a start, maybe a deposit. We celebrate in the, in the season of Easter. Do you remember it? What did they put over the grave but a piece of a mountain? And what will they put over your dead, decaying body? But a little bit of a mountain. And thanks be to God that through Jesus Christ, the victory of Easter, the resurrection, is that at least one stone of that mountain gets moved. And the same way that that mountain or one piece of it couldn't hold Jesus in the grave, so also those of us who are united with him, we will not be under the mountain, but we will be in some strange way, residing over it with Christ. Here's what I get to celebrate nine years in for Connection Church. God has already moved mountains. It's already happened. And the resurrection and the fact that this exists, the fact that you're here hearing the good news of Jesus, even if you leave and say, this is stupid, I don't want any part of it, just the fact that this good news is proclaimed is evidence that the most miraculous thing on the planet has happened that God, righteous and holy, has reconciled sinners to himself to unite with them forever and ever. In this room, God has rewritten family stories. I mean, think, like, think about that. Your family story will not be the same because of what Jesus has done. In this room, right, in this room, people's destinies have been reversed. In this room, the hopeless have found hope. And even though we know and experience the misery that accompanies sin, we also have experienced the miraculous power of Jesus' redemptive word over it. He's Lord. But listen to the story here. He'll show us mercy. He'll grant us the gift of faith, any faith at all, because he is good and mighty, and he will be immeasurably patient with doubts and unbelief. So patient that he will purchase these doubters and unbelievers with his very body. Let's pray and thank God for that. Jesus, thank you so much for your goodness towards us. Uh, Thank you that you did not leave us. You did not leave us to despair and languish apart from your saving work. Thank you that a mountain was moved as the stone was rolled away. Thank you that a mountain was leveled as you have come to redeem humanity. Thank you that you have obliterated sin, death, and hell that separated us from our Creator. And you have done so by welcoming us into yourself. So now, Lord, would you might even call us to yourself. Grant us the gift of faith. If there's some in this room, they wouldn't call themselves Christians or believers or maybe just don't, don't know. Might today they be encouraged? Might today their imagination be stirred to consider what it would look like to trust in and to hope in Jesus? Might for the rest of us, we've, we've heard this and we know this, but we, we still trust in and hope in lesser things. We're still hoping that this story is about us, rather than realizing that our faith is ultimately to point away from us and to guide us away from us and to guide us to the Redeemer. Might today we be renewed as we see the desperation and mercy and the, the man who brings his son, and we see the desperation of Matthew to tell the story of his flaws and failures so that 
we would see just how good and kind you are. Thank you that you draw near to the weak and you, you draw near to the sinner. You restore them to their righteous status that you have back with the Father. Lord, this is cause for celebration because this is the greatest miracle that any of us could imagine. Thank you that it's freely performed and offered for us to receive by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus. Amen.